Oh, you're all looking at me. <laughs> it's not good. My name's Bob. I'm an alcoholic. And I'm sober today through the grace and power of God in the program, the people, principles, alcoholics, anonymous. And because I want to fit and everybody else did this, I've been sober since October, Halloween, 1978. Uh, I want to uh, thank Steve for picking me up at the airport. And the hospitality of the committee and the, I went to a great noon meeting where people here made me feel welcome and uh, a great fruit basket in my room. Uh, hospitality here is overwhelming. I've never been here before. I uh, don't know anything about Kentucky. I was uh, glad to hear Don talk. Uh, never been here. Didn't know what to expect. Uh, I sponsor some really sick people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was telling a couple of people this afternoon, I went to my room and I called home and I checked my voicemail out and I there's a bunch of the guys I sponsored were on the recording and they knew I was coming to Kentucky and the, I wish I could play it for you. The one guy was going on about, I hope nobody says, gee, Bob, you have a pretty smile. And another guy, <laughs> there was another guy in the background yelling out, squeal like a pig, Bob, you know. <laughs> they didn't know what to expect either. And the one guy says, I hope you don't come back changed. Uh, and I, this is just like my home. This is Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, it's the same here as it is in Las Vegas, or it is in uh, Texas, or any place I've ever been. Uh, other countries, AA is AA. I was, uh, I was telling a guy this this afternoon. I was at a meeting in uh, Central America a couple years ago, and I was in this little town where they had no English-speaking meetings. And I'm with this guy who lives down there, who's from the United States, who is an AA, and he took me to a Spanish-speaking meeting. I don't speak Spanish. And I'm at the meeting, and there's a speaker, and he's going on and on. And I'm saying, well, what's he saying? What's he saying? The guy leans over, and he says, well, he says he started drinking. He had a house and a wife and a good job. He kept drinking. He lost all those, got real sick, came to AA, and his life's good. And I thought, I've heard that before. <laughs> and it's the same deal, uh, no matter where you are. Uh, I really enjoyed Riley's talk. Uh, he was talking about the 20 questions. I remember taking those uh, in a treatment center back in the mid, probably around 1975 or 76, somewhere in there, in the years I was in and out of AA. Uh, and they're kind of an intellectual thing. I mean, they don't really touch on any of the stuff that is like it would light me up. Like they had to have some questions like, have you ever grabbed onto the grass and for fear of falling off the earth. I mean, uh, uh, have you ever have you ever gotten more than two Christmas cards from different bail bondsmen? Uh, uh, when when getting undressed in a Salvation Army to take a shower, does the sound of your underwear hitting the ground louder than your shoes? Uh, In a, in a concerted effort to keep down the morning drink and a determined effort of will to keep it down, have you ever thrown out, thrown up out your nose? And, uh, this stuff about, did you ever try to control your drinking? And, and I, didn't really impact me too much. I, uh, I want to welcome, I want to welcome the new people. I'm real glad you're here. I'm real glad you're here. And I, I hope with everything in me that you'll hear something at this weekend that will cause you to catch fire with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
I hope that you'll hear something or see something this weekend that will create inside you a hunger for Alcoholics Anonymous that was as strong as your hunger for alcohol. And if that happens to you, you are on an incredible, incredible journey. Incredible. And I, I, that's the best deal that's ever happened to me. I, there's two things that we all seem to agree on. And if you polled members of Alcoholics Anonymous all over the world, uh, the two things we agree on is that for some reason, we didn't want to come here. We really didn't want to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. We went to great lengths. I mean, if, if this is a typical meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's probably people in here that have been in every branch of therapy there is. There's probably people here who joined every church. You've been dunked, sprinkled, uh, everything you can possibly think of to, to, to keep you from coming to the A&A, right? <laughs> So all of us don't want to come here. And then then ultimately anyone who has been here and worked the steps and got a sponsor and sponsors other people, we unanimously, unanimously agree that this is absolutely, absolutely the best thing that has ever happened to us. And I guess that just shows you that we have no idea what's good for us. No idea. I'll tell you a little story about myself uh, when I was a toddler, I grew up in Pennsylvania. I, I didn't come from an alcoholic home, which is, makes me kind of unfashionable in AA today, but I didn't. I came from a really normal home. Uh, my parents loved me. They nurtured me. They gave me everything that was necessary for me to grow up in a healthy environment and a great education. I knew intellectually that they loved me, but there's something about me I couldn't feel it. You know, I couldn't feel it. And I... I used to go everywhere with my folks, and I enjoyed going with them places. And one Sunday afternoon, they took me to a farmer's market in Pennsylvania, out in the country, where all the farmers bring in their, their produce and their uh, wares and different things that they make. And on the way into the farmer's market, my, my dad is bragging to my mom about this horseradish that he's going to buy in there, and about how it's the hottest, spiciest, most powerful horseradish around. It's won all these awards, and he's real excited because my dad likes that kind of stuff. And I'm listening to this, and I'm going in there. They get the horseradish, and on the way out, I'm asking the guy, I want some. I'm just a little kid. I, I want I want some. It sounded, I'm, listen, I'm hearing the commercial, so I want to try it. And he says, no, no, Rob. He says, you can't have any. This is only for adults. This is too strong, and you can't have it. Well, I'm one of those kind of kids that if you tell me I can't have something, I really want it then. I mean, I may not have even wanted it until you told me I couldn't have it. You tell me I can't have it, then i got to have it. So I bid my time, and I waited till they weren't around, and I snuck into the kitchen, and I opened the refrigerator, got out that jar of horseradish, got a big spoon, <laughs> sat on the kitchen floor, got that lid in off that jar, put that in that jar, stuck that big spoon in my mouth, this was before LSD, but I <laughs> I saw some stuff there that day, and I may have saw God. I'm not sure. Um, snot spewing out of my nose, and tears are, are pouring down my face. And I spewed horseradish all over the kitchen. I threw the jar up against the wall. I am so sick. 
and so miserable. And I got to tell you, that was about four decades ago. And I have never once in all those years sat in the kitchen with a jar of horseradish and a big spoon. Didn't have to go to no treatment. Didn't need no sponsor. Didn't have to work no AA steps. Didn't have to go to no damn meetings. But I got to tell you, and square business, that if that horseradish would have made me feel the way that alcohol made me feel, I'd have spent the rest of my life making myself as sick of that stuff every chance I could get. Because there's something about me that needed to have done what alcohol did for me. There's something about me that just needed to have done it. You know, I'm one of those kind of guys that... uh I, I'm a deep thinker. That's not a good thing. There's a lot of deep thinkers in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, we try to figure everything out. I mean, it's just... And because I'm that way, I spent a lot of my recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous trying... Not, not, it wasn't that I wasn't accepting that I was an alcoholic. I accepted it. But I would wonder, why, why do I have alcoholism and my sister does not? To this day, she has one margarita, two sometimes, occasionally on holidays. She'll have a glass of champagne on New Year's Eve. You know, she's ne- she doesn't have alcoholism. Very well-balanced, emotionally stable person. How come I got alcoholism and she doesn't? We came from the same home. I've heard lots of fifth steps in Alcoholics Anonymous. How come some people who come from homes, alcoholic homes, where they're beaten and abused and sexually molested and just just whooped as children turn out to be alcoholics and then other people who come from those same kind of homes don't. How come that some people have come from homes like I got I came from that were that seemed by every standard in our society functional, loving, nurturing homes? How come some guys that come out of homes like that end up with alcoholism like I got? And some people that come out of homes like that don't. What is it? What's the deal? Why me? And I didn't understand it for a long time. And several years ago, I was with a bunch of guys in my home group, and we went to this movie, and it was called Just Cause. It's a, it's with Sean Connery, and there's a scene in this movie where Sean Connery is going into this prison to interview this serial killer. And this guy is wacko. And he's so crazy, they have him handcuffed to this table. And he's asking him these questions, and this guy's ranting and raving, and he's saying stuff like, well, they had doctors in here trying to examine me to figure out the way, why I kill these people and do these things I do. And he says, and they had psychiatrists in here probing around in my childhood, trying to figure out who made me this way. And he starts this manical laugh, and he says, he start, and he says what they'll never understand is that some people are just born with a hunger. And I'm sitting in that movie theater, and we all kind of turn to each other and look. (laughs) Some people are just born with a hunger. And that was true about me as long as, as far back as I can remember. I was the kind of kid that you you could give me anything I wanted, and it wasn't enough. I just... I just had this vacuum inside of me, this hole that I could never fill. And I'm the guy that the Silkworth talks about in the doctor's opinion. I was an alcoholic from the first time. I, I believe that I was an alcoholic before I ever picked up a drink. I was kind of like a freeze-dried alcoholic. <laughs> and then I know for sure 
that from the first drink I ever had, I'm the guy that Dr. Silkworth talks about. I experienced that phenomenon of craving from the very first drink. I remember, I remember, I remember my first drink so clearly. I was about 12 years old and I'm with a bunch of guys that are older than I am. And we had pulled a burglary and we'd broken into somebody's house and we stole a bunch of whiskey and some other stuff and we're passing around this bottle of Seagram 7. And I remember, now here I am, I'm 12 years old, I'm hanging around with a bunch of guys that are 14, 15 years old, one guy was 16 I think, and they're like the tough kids in the neighborhood. And I want to fit with them so desperately I'll do anything to fit with them. But I, no matter what I do, it's not really enough because I always feel like I'm coming from behind. No matter what I do, I never get a sense that I, that I am like them. I never feel as comfortable around them as they seem to be around each other. And I, I'm always afraid I'm going to be found out because I'm acting the part. I'm playing the game. I'm acting tough, I'm doing the burglaries, I'm doing the steal, and I'm cursing, smoking cigarettes, getting in fights, doing all the stuff that they do. But inside me, I feel awful. And I feel like I'm going to be found out, and I don't feel like they look. And they're passing around this quart bottle of Seagram 7, and it gets to me, and I take a big hit off of that. And for the first time in my life, I didn't have to pretend anymore, I just fit. For the first time in my life, I I didn't have to put up a facade. It was like I was free to be myself and come out and talk to those guys and laugh and joke. And it was an incredible thing. I Alcohol made me feel so good the first time I drank it that feeling normal never felt okay again. Was never alright again. And I, uh, I got in a lot of trouble the first time I ever drank. I went into a blackout. Because I'm, I'm the guy that Silkworth talks about. Once I start, that phenomenon of craving kicks in. And I, I can't, I have that physical allergy to alcohol. I take a drink, something happens to me, doesn't happen to normal people. And the, the funny thing about a craving is, I, I remember getting to Alcoholics Anonymous in the early 70s as a young kid. And sitting in these rehabs with all these old people that were like 30 years old, you know, <laughs> their life's over, you know, I'm sitting. And hearing these lecturers and these people and these members of AA talk about this physical allergy and this phenomenon of craving, and I don't get it. I mean, I, I drink and when I drink I don't, I don't stop and I get drunk and I get in trouble and yeah, but I've seen the movies, The Days of Wine and Roses, and I've seen The Lost Weekend, and I don't, I'm not like that. I don't claw the walls for a drink. But you know, the funny thing about a craving is you don't realize you have it until it's interrupted. That's why there's a test in the big book. There's a test in the big book, there's a test in chapter three. It says if you don't think you're an alcoholic, try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and stop abruptly. That's that's not a viable test for most alcoholics because if I would try the test, after two drinks, it's going to become real clear to me that this is not a good test day. This is not this is not the day to take the test. I mean, the test is a good idea, but this is not the day to take the test. And the reason they suggest that test is that you, I have to look and find some time in my life where my drinking was was cut off, and it was really hard to do. Because I, I don't know anything, I don't know that I'm an alcoholic, but intuitively I protected myself from those situations. 
I remember in junior high school being offered, going over to a guy's house with me and these two other guys. His parents are out of town. We're gonna watch. We're gonna watch football all afternoon. And he he takes he gets a six pack of beer out of the refrigerator that was his dad's, and he says, "You guys want to split this?" And I passed. Now I I didn't pass thinking, no, it's not enough. I didn't pass. I just looked at it and went, eh, this. If he'd have had five cases, I'd have jumped right in there. And I just did that. I, I always protected myself so I wouldn't be cut off. And I'm sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in the mid-70s. And I'm, uh, I was probably, probably about 1976 in, in some institution. And I'm listening to a woman share her experience. And the, the miracle of AA and the beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous for a guy like me is that I can never, I have a seeming inability to be told anything about myself directly. I've had people all my life that try, say, Bob, you're this and you're that. And when you do that to me, I have certain defense mechanisms that just kind of come into play. And you can't get to me that way. But the beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous is in AA, nobody's ever tried to tell me anything about me except on occasion, there's, we have people that do that, but most of the time, nobody's trying to tell me anything about me. They're talking about themselves. And I'm listening to you talk about yourself. So my defense mechanisms are down. And I'm not trying to, in my head, I don't have to prove that I'm not like that or I'm not, I'm just listening. And I'm listening to this woman talk about her experience and, and all of a sudden I remembered something, an experience that had happened to me when I was about 17 or 18 years old. And I, for the first time in my life, I could see the phenomenon of craving. When I was at, when I was about 17 or 18 years old, I was dating a gal, and she invited me over to her parents' house for dinner to meet her whole family. And her mom and her dad's there, and she's there, and I'm there, and we're having this long dinner. It's going to be one of those deals where I'm kind of under the microscope, you know, and I'm going to be there all evening. And I don't like stuff like that, but I'm trying to be a good guy, do the right thing. So I'm sitting there at the dinner table, and they brought out a bottle of wine. Now, when I was 17, 18 years old, there was no way I was an alcoholic. I was in my hippie, better living through chemistry stage of my alcoholism. Okay, Doesn't mean I wasn't an alcoholic. Alcoholism doesn't care how, how long your hair is. I mean, really. Uh, and I'm sitting at that dinner table, and they bring out this bottle of wine, and I always drank quickly. I don't know if evaporation is a childhood issue with me or something, I don't know. But I drink, I drink quickly, quickly, I've always drank quickly. And because I drink quickly, I got two glasses out of this bottle of wine, and I'm done two glasses, and they're still sipping on their first glass. And I'm sitting there done these two glasses, and I'm, I don't know anything about alcoholism, I don't know anything about physical allergy phenomena, craving, I'm sitting there with two glasses of wine in me, and I'm feeling uncomfortable. I'm feeling restless. And I want another drink. And I'm getting fidgety. And I finally blurted out. I said, you know, that sure was good wine. Do you have any more? And they said, uh, no, Bob, I'm sorry we don't. And they went back to talking. And I sat there and I'm getting more and more fidgety. And you know how you talk to yourself in your head? The conversations are getting a little panicky in here. And they're getting a little more confusing and a little more hectic. And, and I'm sitting there getting a little more antsy. And I finally blurted out, you know, I sure like beer. They said, well, that's nice, Bob. We don't have any beer. And, and I, I, a couple of minutes later, I had to tell them how I had also enjoyed cocktails. And they said, look, Bob, we don't have anything. We're sorry. They were nice people. We're sorry. 
we didn't know. Next time you come over, we'll get you a six-pack of beer, or if you like uh, Scrooge, whatever you like, we'll get it for you. And they went back to talking about Vietnam and, and sports and all this stuff, and I'm sitting there at the dinner table, I got two glasses and wine in me, and I feel like I'm going to lose my goddamn mind. <laughs> And I can't even think straight. I can't talk to him any. It's like it's all of them yammering on about something and it's me in here just going wacko. And finally, I, I excused myself. I went, I went to the bathroom. I locked the door and like a crazed animal, I went through the medicine cabinet and the shelf. I found this bottle of cough medicine. It was 35% alcohol with codeine and turpenhydrate in it. I remember sitting down on the edge of the bathtub and taking off the lid and, and taking a swig off and it's like, there's hope. And I remember chugging that whole bottle of cough medicine on the edge of that bathtub. And all of a sudden, all the voices in my head became focused. And they became one voice and it said, Bob, get out of here. And I came up with a plan about about this thing I had forgotten to take care of, and I was—I went back out to the dinner table. I had—I had went to grill. I went to great lengths to hide the empty cough medicine bottle. Went back out to the dinner table. I told him this story about this thing that was that I'd forgotten to take care of, and it was—I'm so sorry I have to leave. And they were—they were nice about it. They're nice people, and they—we're sorry you have to leave too. I'll come back. We'll do this again. Yes, you come back. On I went, got in my car. I drove down to the edge of their street. Twenty. 25 miles an hour like a gentleman. I turned the corner and drove like 80 or 90 miles an hour like a crazed maniac to a guy's house who had a bar in the basement because I had two glasses of wine. Now, I was the only person at that dinner table as an alcoholic. As other people have been alcoholics, we'd all been in that bathroom going through those cabinets. <laughs> but alcohol does something to me that it doesn't do to my sister and it doesn't do to those people. And I... I came into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1978 and I finally knew that I had the physical allergy. I knew that. I knew that actually probably a year, two years before I got sober. I got that much of it. In my years in and out, I knew that. I knew that once I took a drink, I was compelled to go. I was like, it was like unleashing a dam. I just, I was gone until I run out of gas. I knew that. Until I was stopped by running out of money or getting arrested or being so physically sick I can't drink it. I knew that about me. But what I didn't understand is what Silkworth talks in the book, about in the book. He says that this phenomenon of craving differentiates us and sets us apart as a distinct entity. That non-alcoholics will never experience that effect from alcohol that I, that I experienced. And I came into AA and I knew that I had that. But I, I thought everyone that drinks must, must surely get that feeling of wanting more that I get. They must they must get that. It must light them up the way that it lights me up. Silkworth says that's not true. And I didn't understand that until I was about four four and a half years sober and I'm dating a gal who's not an alcoholic. And we would go out to dinner and she would order a drink and I swear to God it would take her a half hour to drink one drink. I mean, she would take a sip and then talk for ten minutes and stir and then talk and the ice is melting. It's like alcohol abuse, you know? <laughs> the whole time I knew her, 
I, I saw her order two drinks quite often. I never saw her finish two. She would drink half, two-thirds, a third of the second drink, and she would do the most bizarre thing you've ever seen. She'd push it aside. She'd say, I don't want any more. I'm starting to feel it. <laughs> Listen, it would be easier for me as an alcoholic to have sex and after two strokes say, I don't want any more of that. I'm starting to feel it. And it would be to do that with two drinks of alcohol. That's not that funny. So I'm looking at my friend that's not an alcoholic and I'm starting to get it. I can, I'm learning something about me by looking at her in contrast. See, my friend, when she pushed aside the second drink, she was not trying to prove a point. We've all done that. You know, our parents are on our back about our drinking, or our lover, girlfriend's on our back about our drinking, or our boss is on our back about our drinking, and we go out with them sometime, and they're watching us. We can have two to show them. Can't do that a lot, but we can do it once in a while. Now, my friend wasn't trying to prove nothing to me. When she took two drinks, she got a feeling like she's losing control. I take two drinks, I get a feeling like I'm getting control. It does something for me that she'll never experience. It fills up all my vacancies. It gives me the illusion. It, it's not that it fills them up. It never really filled them up. It gives me the illusion they're about to be filled up. Maybe on the next drink. I have never once had the experience that a, that a social drinker, a non-alcoholic, has on a regular basis. And that's the experience of being in a bar. And after having several drinks, having the bartender come around and saying, Bob, do you want another drink? And sitting there and going, no, you know, this is just right. <laughs> this is just right. This is fine. I have never been there. I, I am a real alcoholic. I start drinking. It's like a vacuum opens up inside of me that I can never fill. I have... I have never been to a point where I've had enough. I've gone, I've passed out and figured I must have had it, but I've never been that, I've never once been satisfied. But most of my drinking was, it wasn't the feeling that, that alcohol all of a sudden is maybe somebody or it's filled up all my holes, but I just had this sense of urgency that it's about to. The next drink, like I'm, most of my drinking, there, I'm chasing there. And I'm never really there, but I'm real close to there most of the time. And it's like there is just beyond my fingertips. And the next thing I know, I'm coming to somewhere, and I figure I must have been there, but I don't, because I don't remember it. <laughs> I think, I think there is the place you can't remember, you know. <laughs> now, now all this is academic stuff. If that was all that there was to my alcoholism, then I'd have got sober long before. But I'm I'm the chronic slipper in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm the guy. You you see somebody before you today that you see in your groups right now. The guy that's been in and out for four or five or six or seven years that you just know is going to die from alcoholism. That can't get this thing. That can't seem through his best efforts to put together more than a couple months. And that's the guy I was. And I'll tell you, I went through. Uh, a bad period of my life, in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous, 
And I would end up, I kept, and I'm through part of this, I know I'm an alcoholic, and through the beginning part, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. And then eventually I think I'm an alcoholic. And through the part that I don't think I'm an alcoholic, I'm actually, I'm kind of convinced I'm not an alcoholic. My problems are probably of a deep psychological nature. <laughs> but every time I drink, I keep ending up where all the alcoholics are at. You know, I, in county jails and detoxes and, uh, and then I come to discover that I am an alcoholic. And I think that that's it. Now that I know that I'm an alcoholic, I'm just not going to drink again. And I'll come to AA for support. And I got to tell you, if in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it talks about people who can do that. And from page 20 to 25, it talks about the difference between the hard problem drinker and the real alcoholic. And I guess somewhere inside of me, I wanted to be a hard drinker. Because the hard drinker, according to the big book, if a sufficient reason, falling in love, ill health, warning from a doctor, etc., 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 the hard drinker can stop or moderate on his own, even though he might need detox, might need medical attention. And a hard drinker doesn't have to come and work steps. He doesn't have to sponsor anybody. He doesn't have to make amends. He doesn't do any of this stuff. A hard problem drinker can come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and this is a great social support group for a person like that. Kind of like the sober elks. But there's guys like me, I come to Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm not the problem drinker. I'm not the hard drinker, I'm the real alcoholic. And I come into Alcoholics Anonymous and I get physically sober and I can't stand it. And I want, and I'm so afraid of people, I want you to accept me and like me so I pretend that I'm like you. And I know what it's like to sit in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and die of untreated alcoholism and feel a sick separateness and loneliness and look at all you people laughing and having a good time and just wondering, what's wrong with me? It surely is not the same thing that's wrong with you because I stopped drinking and I'm not like you. I stopped drinking and I feel like a fish out of water. I stopped drinking and abstinence feels like I'm doing time. And what I do is I find myself sitting in a state of separation in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it seems to me that you guys quit drinking and just became wonderful. I mean, everybody in AA that talks is more grateful than the person who spoke before him. Everybody in AA just has wonderful relationships and great jobs and, and just quality lives, and they feel so good about themselves. And they feel so good about their lives and their families have returned. And, and there were times that if I'd have had an Uzi in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd have reduced the population of AA significantly. Because everything you were just pointed out in stark relief, everything I'm not. And I don't understand that what's going on is I'm sitting in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous with untreated alcoholism. And I'm comparing what it feels like to be me with untreated alcoholism to, to what it looks like to be you with a program of recovery, and I'm coming up short. But I was, I guess I might have had selective hearing in those days, because I would hear, it would seem to me that the speakers I would hear in AA would have these funny, tragic drunkalogs. And, the, and I would sit there and I would identify with, with the things that they were talking about in their drinking. And then they would come to AA and find God 
and their life would change miraculously. And I came to AA, and I don't see no God, and my life isn't changing, and something's wrong with me that's not wrong with you, because I'm drinking your coffee, sitting in your meetings, and I didn't, I never, I don't think I ever heard anyone talk about what it feels like to have untreated alcoholism sober. And my first connection, when I, in 1978, when I first, when I got sober this last time, I'm sitting in a detox hospital, and I heard a man talk about the feelings of alienation when he would stop drinking. And those feelings like he never fit anywhere. And he was the first guy that ever got my attention. Because I felt so different. I felt so separate. I remember, see, there's something that happens to me when I quit drinking is that I get real self-absorbed. And I get real, I don't know that what's going on is that I'm afraid. And I'm really afraid of you. I'm afraid of what you think of me. I'm afraid of what you'll say to me. I'm afraid of making a mistake. I'm afraid of being rejected. I'm afraid of everything. And so I withdraw up into this control center in my life where I'm safe and distant. And I look out at the world and I feel like you're so far away. And I live in a feeling, I live in a world where it seems to me it's all of you. And then there's me separate and apart from. And in the book when it says that we know a loneliness such as few do and we wish for the end, I'm not so sure that they're talking about while we're drinking. I had a close friend, uh, a guy with, I was talking to Vince about this at dinner and I, 24 years sober without taking a drink, took his own life a couple weeks ago. Put a plastic bag over his head with a rubber band left a note saying he didn't want to drink or take pills because he didn't want to be an embarrassment to AA. Took his own life. 24 years sober. Great marriage. Wonderful job. Harley Davidson. Corvette. Poster child for AA. I'm one who believes that if I have the same disease that he has, what can happen to him can happen to me. And I am... I. I really desperately look at people who relapse or commit suicide sober and try to figure out what they're not doing and what what they are doing they shouldn't be doing. And what I, I'll tell you about my friend. When I first got sober, he was sober a couple years prior to me, before me, and he was one of the most active people in AA at the time. Head of intergroup, started the Young People's Roundup, went to probably... 12 meetings a week, did 12-step work, was on all kinds of committees, did all kinds of stuff. There's a delusion that it talks about in the big book, in chapter 3. It says the delusion that we are like other people, or that we presently may be like other people, maybe like it 20 years, has to be smashed. And what I watched my friend do over the years is what I've watched a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous do. We come into the program, and our first couple of years of, of, of sobriety, I, I, we're so desperate. You know, ten meetings a week, call my sponsor every day, work with newcomers, write inventory, send those crapheads checks and amend stuff where I need the money more than they do and send it anyway. <laughs> Say you're sorry to people that really don't deserve it. You know, you just do all that stuff... <laughs> Then at five years sober, I've gotten some of my rights back. I don't, I only need six meetings a week. 
Don't need to work with sponsor too much anymore. Don't need to work with as many newcomers. Got a big life now. Got a relationship and a good job. Business. Going to two meetings, three meetings a week. Not sponsoring anybody. Maybe one or two guys from, from a couple years ago, but no new, no new people. And what happens to guys like me is that my feet start depicting a person who is moving from into lesser and lesser degrees of alcoholism. As if my actions say that over here at three years of sobriety, I'm acting like someone who has a tremendous case of alcoholism. Now, at five years of sobriety, I'm acting like someone who doesn't have quite as much alcoholism as I had at one year. And at ten years of sobriety, I'm acting like one who doesn't really have any alcoholism at all. I just kind of drop into AA meetings and see my friends. And I start moving from alcoholism into alcoholism. And I watch my friend do that, and I've watched, unfortunately, God, too many, many people do that. Too many people. I, for the last almost 20 years, I've, I've had commitments at hospitals and institutions, at least two a week. I, right now I've been doing three the last year. And I go to a skid row detox twice a week and I do a meeting in there. And there is not a week that goes by that I don't see someone who has had 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 years or, or even I, I saw a guy with 38 years who drank again. And I see people there that you will never see in your groups. And I'll tell you why. For two reasons. If you're, if you live in Cincinnati or Florida or Texas or Oklahoma or California or Utah or anywhere and you're sober 10, 15, 20, 25 years, you go on a running drunk, Las Vegas is like a magnet. And I see those people in those meetings all the time. And you'll never see them in mainstream AA because for some reason they can't get back. They can't make it back. I've been working with a guy, right? I've been working with a guy now that he's, he had 18 years and he's in and out. He can't get three months and it's been three years. He can't, he's gonna die on the streets. He can't make it back. So. All these experiences and all these things I see keep me from the firing line of life of alcoholics. I, I wish I, I wish I could tell you that I'm smarter than they are. I wish I could tell you that I got a better program. Some of the people I've seen drink, again, it, I know at one time had probably a better program than I got. And they stopped doing the deal. They started moving from alcoholism into alcoholism. I'll tell you how I got to AA. Uh, 1977, I uh, busted out of a halfway house in Pittsburgh. When I say busted out, it's like, you know, when you've, you've been sober just about as long as you can stand it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and you're just up to here with... I love W.C. Field. He says, I was sober one time. It was the most boring 45 minutes of my life. <laughs> and that's what it feels like to, to take that first drink. It's like to bust out, right? And I'm busting out of this halfway house with another guy, and we're going on this drunk, and I'm homeless, and he's got this little beat-up trailer, and we're coming off a run one night, and I'm crashing on the couch of his trailer, and I, we go over there, he passes out on the bed, and I'm still awake. And if I'm still awake, <laughs> I'm not done drinking. I'm just, I'm not, you know, if I'm still conscious, I'm not done drinking. 
and he left his car keys and his wallet on the counter. Now, I am not a thief. <laughs> but I do have a deep understanding of when loans are appropriate. <laughs> and I secured a little loan, got his car keys, went out to get some more juice because I ain't done. I still got that phenomenal cravings running around inside of me. That, that hunger, I got to have another drink. And I get in a, don't remember it, but I get in a felony DUI hit and run in a stolen car. I end up uh, almost four months in the county jail because homeless people can't make bail. You have to, usually have to have an address to get a bail bondsman to go for you. I go before a judge who knew everything about me. He had the probation and parole report in front of him. He knew about all the treatment centers. He knew about all my arrests. He knew about the whole deal. And he, he told me all this stuff about me, and I just stood there and hung my head because I'm sober. And when I'm sober, I'm real humble. And he sentenced me to two years in the Greatersford State Prison in Pennsylvania. And then he did something that was very unusual that I found later. I know other, I've met people in AA, the same things happened to them. He stayed the commitment. He signed the papers. He said, you're all right, it's a done deal. He says, but I'm going to give you a break. There's only one place that'll take you. It's called the Ark House. It's not even really, it wasn't even a treatment center. It's a, they house Skid Row winos, really. He says, you can go into this place for a year. You get good UAs, good PO report, make all the, get a job, get, make the restitution, all that stuff, and you do everything you're supposed to do. You come back in front of me in a year on such and such a date, and you may not have to do the two years, but if you cannot fulfill any of those requirements, it's a done deal, you're gone. So I went into this place, and I went into this place with a desperation. And if desperation was enough to overcome the compulsion to drink and the obsession with alcohol, I'd have probably got sober then. But I'm the guy they talk about in the book, Lack of Power is My Dilemma. That the most, in, the most deep-seated, enthusiastic desire not to drink is not enough. I don't have the needed power to carry it out. And I went into this place, and I don't want to do the two years in prison, and I don't want to get thrown out of there because winter's coming on, and I had spent part of a winter on the streets of Pittsburgh, homeless, and it's a bad way to go. you got to walk all night. You can't even sit down because it's 10 degrees. You sit down, you're going to fall asleep. So you walk all night long looking for doorways. and I didn't want to go through that again. I didn't want to be sick on those winter streets. So I'm in this place and I'm determined not to drink. And I don't think, i, I got to tell you something. I'm going in there, I'm probably, I was probably more consciously determined not to take a drink than I am today. I'm not, I don't really, to be honest with you, I don't really consciously, forcefully think I'm not going to drink. I'm not, I don't think that way anymore. I don't even think about it one way or the other, to be honest with you. I've, what's happened to me is what it talks about in the book, but I've been placed in a position of neutrality. It's not even in my life, it's neither, it's not even a theme, thing in my life anymore, really. But I'm in this place and I'm fighting the bottle and I'm fighting it day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out. I'm just getting it up to here with being sober. And I'm going out of my mind. And I got emotional problems and I got mental problems. I got employment problems. I'm going crazy and I want to drink so bad I can taste it. And I'm in an in-house meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and I did something I'd never done before. In a moment of desperation, I grabbed some old-timer after this meeting this guy must have been sober a year, year and a half at least. <laughs> and I grabbed this guy and I said, I need to talk to somebody. And he sat down with me in this room and he listened to me and I went on and I told him about the two years in prison. I told him about, about how I, I was so, I don't think I can stay sober. And I told him about all the failures. 
I told him about the emotional problems. There was something wrong with me emotionally. I was the kind of guy, I could be sitting in the day room, watching TV, feel on top of the world, like everything's great, and all of a sudden, I just would sink into this depression where I want to go out in the garden and eat worms. It was like, it's just this pit. And nobody even said anything to me. I just would just do that. I got these mental problems. I got all these conversations in my head. You know, these little voices, and they all, they're, one minute they're convincing me I got cancer. The next minute they're telling, you know, all this little, oh, crazy. You take alcohol out of my life, and living with my mind is like driving cross-country in a van full of eight-year-olds that have overdosed on sugar, and none of them like you. It's like, you know, just wacko. And I'm telling him about all this craziness, and I can't sleep right. I sleep two hours, and I wake up, and I'm afraid of stuff, and I don't even know what I'm afraid of. And I said, I can't work. I can get a job. I've been in this place several months. I've had three jobs. I can get a good job. But something happens to me. And, there, and it's happened to me all my life. And I don't know what's wrong with me. But I always, people always come up to me and they, they call me into the office. And they say things to me like, Bob, you're a hard worker, but there's something wrong with your attitude. And I think, what? What? What do you mean? I just, what? What are you talking about? I don't get it. What do you mean attitude? I, or they'll say things to me, Bob, you're a hard worker, but you're just not a team player. Well, you give me a pint of Jack Daniels, I'll lead your goddamn team. Sober, I don't fit very well. Yeah, okay, I'm not a team player. I get, I go to work and it's them and it's me. You know, and, and I don't know how to do it any other way. I don't know how to be different from that. And I spent years in therapy trying to overcome that. I, I came from a good family, but I, I just, you know, I just thought, I went to therapy, I went to hypnotherapy one time because I couldn't find anything out in regular therapy. I wanted to be regressed back into my childhood because I remembered most of my childhood, but I thought, I thought somebody must have damaged me somewhere. I feel damaged. Somebody must have did something to me, you know, because I just felt damaged. You know, I felt, I didn't feel right. I didn't feel like you looked. And I went back through that and I couldn't find anything. I had a great family. That's alcoholism. Alcoholism. So I'm telling him this, all this stuff, and I, I, you know, and I'm the prison and all this crap, and I said, I need help. What can I do, man? And he points to this thing on the wall. It's this, this shade, this thing with the 12 steps. And he says, Bob, he says, if you put these 12 steps into your life, things will change. And he gets, he gives me his phone number card, and he says, I'll help you do that if you want, if you want to. And he gets up and he walks way to the back of the meeting room to get a cup of coffee, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I've read these steps before. I've seen them in meetings. I better really, really read them, you know. And I, I start reading them. And I, it becomes really clear to me that this guy hadn't heard anything that I had just told him. I mean, there is absolutely, absolutely nothing in those steps that has anything to, I mean, stretch your imagination as much as you want. There's nothing in those steps. It has anything to do with what I just told this guy. Nothing. Nothing. It's like, I need a set of steps. It's like, step one, make Bob's police record disappear. Uh, <laughs> step two, bring her back properly ashamed of herself. Uh, uh, step three, make his family realize how wrong they've been about him. Step four, give me a thousand dollars. Or just give me a step that makes me feel better. Or give me a step that, that quiets down this stuff the way that about five shots of tequila does. 
give me a step that lets me think straight and gets me focused, like like a half a pint of whiskey or a bottle of wine does. But instead, we got my personal favorite, turn my will and my life over to the care of God. <laughs> now, I could understand how you good people in AA could do that. I'm... I could perfectly, I could understand that, uh, but I was, I understood it, I had an understanding of God as this guy who, he existed to judge me, and he could see in the dark, which is not a good thing for a guy like me, that's a, that's a bad, bad deal, bad deal, and he, and he could read my mind, which is hideous, I remember the nuns used to say, you must be pure, Robert. Must be killer. It's not weird to eat. And they say that in X-rated movies and just start going through. I start as if I can see through their habit, you know. I just <laughs> and and I'm trying not. To, I'm a little kid. I'm trying not to think that. Oh, don't think that. Oh, no, don't think that. <laughs> I can't. I can't stop. I, I just think stuff, you know. I'm one of those kind of guys. You tell me not to think about stuff. I just boy, I think about it. I'm just that way. So, turn my will and my life over to the care of God. I'd rather turn it over to a narcotics agent. You know? And then, like, oh, the one that really got, I ate the ninth step, making amends. Good thing for you people. I'm sure, I'm sure, some of you probably drank too much one night and said something unkind to your wife. You should apologize. Yes, yes, do that. I lived on the streets. Like an animal. I robbed, the, I was the kind of guy, you felt sorry for me, and you said you can sleep on my floor. When you went out to the store or went to work, I robbed you. I mean, I, it wasn't personal. I mean, you know, I just, <laughs> I just did that. I would rip people off. I, to save my own butt one time, I, I was arrested. I was facing 10 years in prison. I dined out all these guys in this outlaw motorcycle gang, you know, to save my, I just imagine myself, after this guy gets out of 10 years in prison, going up to this guy named Cheech and saying, Well, Cheech, I'm sorry you had to do the 10 years, but I'm a sober member of AA, and I hope you forgive me. You know? I mean, I might as well put a gun to my head, really, you know? So, I look at these steps, and I, I just walked away from that guy. He says, Anything I can do to help you? And I said, No, man. I just, I went up to my room. And I went on my last drunk right out a couple days after that. I couldn't stand it anymore. And see, the point of my problems is that I go on a run and alcohol just takes everything away from me. And I get sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and the first thing I get back is my damn opinion. And it is my opinion and my judgment that kept me from getting everything that you guys have, everything that God has ever, ever given his most beloved children, in my opinion. I was offered Alcoholics Anonymous repeatedly from 1971 to 1978, and I, my opinion and my judgment said, my case is different. This won't work for me. I'm not like you people. There's something wrong with me that's not right. I need therapy. I need something else. And I was kind of like, if you were to walk down through the skid row part of the town that you live in, where all the homeless guys are, and some guy would crawl out of the bushes that had been living in the bushes for months and hasn't bathed with matted down here. And he'd come up to you and ask you for a quarter. And you give him a quarter and he says, you know, I really like you. I'm going to give you $10 million. And he reaches inside his inner coat pocket and he 
pulls out this dirty check he's obviously stolen from somewhere. And he writes you out this check for $10 million and he gives it to you. If you're like I am, you kind of be nice about it and you walk away when he's not looking. You tear it up and you throw it away because you know. I mean, you know. It's a bum, man. He doesn't have 10 cents. I just gave him a quarter. <laughs> Except that the check's good. And he's one of those wackos like Howard Hughes or something. And for seven years, I kept tearing up the check and in 1978, forced into a state of desperateness by what it talks about in chapter 11. I cashed the check. And I've been cashing it ever since. And I'm going to talk real brief about what, it, what happened to me. It talks about it in chapter 11. It, said, it talks about the entrance to Alcoholics Anonymous. It calls it the jumping off place. It says that we get to a point where we can't imagine life with alcohol and we can't imagine life without it. We will know a loneliness such as few do. We'll be at the jumping off place and we'll wish for the end. And that's exactly what had happened to me. I got to a point where I knew, I finally got it down in here, that no matter what I drink or drugs I supplement it with or smoke or drop or whatever, I cannot get high the way I got high when I was 20 years old. At the end of my drinking, I'm not the guy that's in some skid row bar dancing and with the girls and shooting pool and laughing and talking to the guys. I'm the guy that's sitting over at the end of the bar, drinking himself into oblivion, crying, hoping nobody sees me because I feel so awful. Looking at the people that are drinking and having a good time and wondering what's wrong with me. Because I could remember the days when alcohol did that for me. I could remember the days where alcohol was a treatment for this thing that is wrong with me. I could remember the days where five shots of whiskey and I could come out and play. Where five shots of whiskey and I was relieved of the bondage of self. But I cross a line where alcohol stops being a treatment for alcoholism and yet I can't stop because I enter into periods of abstinence and I can't stand it. I'm the guy that Silkworth talks about. I'm restless, irritable, and discontent unless I can again experience that sense of ease and comfort. So I'm stuck. Sobriety is unbearable. Drunkenness is unbearable. And I don't even have the courage to kill myself. On my last drunk, I, I stood with a bottle of Richard's Wild Irish Rose on this bridge in Pittsburgh looking down at these railroad tracks, sobbing uncontrollably because I didn't have the courage to jump off and do the right thing. I was afraid. I was afraid I'd screw that up like I'd screwed up everything else in the rest of my life. And instead of dying, I'd end up paralyzed from the neck down in some hospital and watch AA members bring newcomers in and see their faces go and hear the voice, yeah, if you don't work our 12 wonderful steps, this will happen to you, you know, and have to listen to that for 40 or 50 more years, you know, paralyzed, couldn't even touch my privates, you know, just, so I couldn't live sober, I couldn't live drunk, and I couldn't die, and I was at the jumping off place, and that's when I ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous in a detox in Las Vegas in 1978. The Buddhists say, when the student's ready, the teachers appear. And members of my home group, the floating big book group of Las Vegas, brought meetings into that hospital. They're the most active group in carrying the message of Alcoholics Anonymous in southern Nevada. We do, I think we do 11 now, hospital and institution meetings every week. Not, not in a group, but we do. Just our group. And we run it. They call us the wolf pack. We run in a pack of guys. And if you're a newcomer, we don't, you don't even get a say. You're just coming over. They're just coming over. That's all. Step one in our group is get in the car. You know? <laughs> get in the car. You know? That's the deal, man. And we got a lot of, there's a lot of people staying sober as a result of that wolf pack. And it's a, and it's a wonderful thing. 
And I, I, I was telling somebody before the meeting how much I love the people that I sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, the feeling that I get when I'm around them and I'm loving them is what I always imagined it would feel like if I found the right person to love me. And I guess maybe I just had it backwards all my life. I was a taker and I wanted it to come to me. And I never got it until I gave it to you. And if you're new here, uh, I, I hope that you come back to another meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I hope you get a sponsor that's, that's grounded in the big book of AA and that he will take you through that process exactly the way it's outlined in that book. And if he starts telling you to reparent your inner child or any of that crap, get somebody else. Get somebody else. And, and don't get me wrong. I, I am not against I am not against therapy. I'm not against any of that stuff. I have no access to grind. But at least try the steps first. And if you're sponsoring other people and you're taking here and their fifth steps and you're helping them do a fourth and a ninth and an eighth step and you're still depressed, then we talk about some alternative. But don't do that stuff first. I've watched so many people relapse in the last four or five years. They get, they've never worked the steps. They come in, they sit in alcoholism, so untreated alcoholism. They get, they go to a therapist, they get on antidepressants, and, and two years later the antidepressants aren't, aren't enough. It activates the phenomenon of craving and they're out. And it's, I can't say it's the therapy that did it. It's untreated alcoholism is what does it. If you, if I do anything other than that to treat my alcoholism, I'm a dead man. And I don't know, and, and don't get me wrong, I don't know that that is true for everyone in this room. But I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that it is true for me. That I am the real alcoholic. I am the guy that it talks about in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my very life as an ex-problem drinker depends upon my constant thought of others, their needs, and how I can work for them. And if you're sober here, and you're maybe you're sober five years, and you've, you've kind of done a version of the steps, and you're not really sponsoring a lot of people, or real active, and you, you feel restless and irritable and discontent, and you're starting to feel that AA is not enough, and you're starting to think, you know, I, I had to get a good therapist and really just work on myself. I'll save you a lot of money. <laughs> just try this experiment. For the next week, do absolutely nothing except work on you, think about you, do for you, fix you. If you survive that week, spend a whole week where the focus of your life is to help anyone who comes in contact with you. And if you have the same spiritual malady that I have, it's called alcoholism, you will know at the end of that second week. Which is the way for you to go? And if you're new, I hope you come back to another meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. He has good news and bad news. The good news is that what we have here is a substantial and effective treatment for the inside emptiness of alcoholism. The bad news, it doesn't work as fast as five shots of tequila. Thank you.